Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I am not Amber McKinney. I'm not Amber McKinney either. Weird how that works. Um, Amber is out this week. I am Alex Lawson, uh, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host. He brings the BDE, the Bill Donahue energy. Sure, right. It's Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. I I can't believe that she finally did it. She allowed us to have an episode of... Of brosé. Well, yeah, it's, it's finally brosé. We've been talking about it basically since the podcast began. Uh, well, I mean, I think uh, listeners of the show know that Amber is our boss. Um, it's true. So there is a certain amount of, you know, the prisoners running the prison right There are now. no managers in the room, and <clears throat> no. that's a little bit frightening. Uh, Producer Steve is barely holding it together over there. Um, but yeah, Amber, Amber's out, and we should we, we, we should sort of take our caps off and pay homage to her great streak. She went 76 episodes. The, uh, the Lou Gehrig of... That's right. Uh, we didn't want to bring in another oh. host in case she got Wally pipped, oh, but... Oh, uh, God. All right, yeah. Um, it's also uh, coming up on Halloween, Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about uh, like your favorite Halloween costume you ever did like as a kid, or as an adult. Well, as an adult, I mean, as a kid, I did a really great Clinton in like just oh. young, just young enough where like clearly my parents were like, you should be Bill Clinton, and it was it was great, it was excellent. Your I name's won, already Bill. I won it's awards. A whole thing. It yeah. was excellent. But uh, I mean, I was a hot dog for for five <laughs> years in the mid oh, no. in the mid twenty teens. Oh, um, nice. It's a pretty good one. Uh, um, I I never had like really remarkable ones. Um, I I dressed as Benny the Jet Rodriguez from the Sandlot once see, in but college. The, then you'd kind of, like you you. What's the defining characteristic there? A Dodger hat? Yeah, like, I had a Dodger's hat anyway. Like Converse All Stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Jeans that were too tight. Sure. Base green baseball ringer tee. How- you know, they say the Jets lost a step, but I think we can still see some fireworks. <laughs> the, the the best one I ever saw though, my my best friend from high school, his name's Josh. He listens to the show. He once, like in the late '90s, he went as Fred Durst, <laughs> khaki mm-hmm. pants, black T-shirt, red Yankees hat, but also like. The the scream mask. <laughs> so he was like Fred Durst as the scream guy. Peak, peak 1990s. Stuff. I saw a picture of it later. I was like, this is like this is like late 90s, like liquefied into my veins. Right. If he also had a dancing baby there, or or something, I don't know, some some other just peak 90s references. Yeah, the the Taco Bell uh, Chihuahua or something. And here we are talking about Taco Bell again. <laughs> oh, and there we're back. The McRib's back, by the way. Did you see that? Is that true? Yeah. Or wow. Next week or something. Uh, anyway, as you can see. This is why Amber normally drives the boat. Um, uh, She'll be back next week. Uh, We do have a great show uh, for you this week. We're going to have DC reporter Jimmy Hoover on to talk about some of the implications for big law, uh, about the fallout from the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi uh, and the sort of business relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. There's obviously a lot of implications for law firms. in that regard. Uh, but first, we have an interesting lawsuit that you're going to talk about, Bill, uh, regarding climate change. Yeah, a couple interesting things this week, climate change-wise, which we've talked about on the show. It's you know it's this all-consuming problem that we talk about a lot, but more from a policy perspective than, than a litigation perspective. But yeah. there have been these efforts in recent years to figure out where courts play in here. Yeah. Um, so this week we had... Um, yeah, it was a couple developments. We had the Supreme Court push pause on this really novel um, case filed by uh, by a group of teenagers saying that, that 
they had that their constitutional rights have been violated by this potential future harm that climate change is going to cause. They say the teens will save us, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> the kids are all right. Yeah. So um, that was one. And uh, and then on Wednesday, yesterday, um, New York State's attorney general filed this sweeping case against ExxonMobil, saying that the company essentially defrauded its shareholders by you know, by not taking climate change seriously. Okay, well, let's go through them one by one. So you're telling me a bunch of kids sued the government? What do they think of next, Bill? <laughs> it's, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's one it's one step beyond us talking about the uh, the the monkey suing over copyright oh, yeah. law. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who could forget? I'm, I'm comparing children to monkeys. I did it first. Yeah, that's canon. Uh, uh, anyway, so what is it? So so what does it say here? Um, so the case was filed back in 2015. You know, you might think that this was filed against the Trump administration, but it was actually filed against the Obama administration mm-hmm. back in 2015 by um, 21 plaintiffs who are aged between 11 and 22. Who say that by not taking overachievers, by yeah. the way, r- rank overachievers. Okay, <laughs> by by not taking enough action on climate change, the the government was violating their Fifth Amendment rights. They say that that the Fifth Amendment um, quote recognizes and preserves the fundamental right of citizens to be free from government actions that harm life, liberty, and property. Okay, so the idea is if you're destroying our future um, by not taking sufficient action now, you are violating our Fifth Amendment rights. Okay, but you said the Supreme Court has already sort of lightly intervened here. Yeah, um, the case was set to go to trial um, this week, but uh, the Supreme Court Chief Justice Roberts granted this this emergency stay to the Trump administration, putting the case on hold and allowing the administration to, um, or allowing the court to consider these these other filings from the government that, mm-hmm. that you know could could potentially dismiss the case probably will you know could could trim it down um but uh yeah so we don't really know what's happening with that one but it's, it's definitely and it's definitely sort of an unusual move to see the you know see the supreme court step in like that so yeah. that was an interesting interesting wrinkle right there um and you mentioned the new york attorney general also filed uh, an action right on wednesday uh reportedly after many years of investigation involving other states. Um, New York State Attorney General Barbara Underwood filed this case against ExxonMobil. Um, you know, it's a shareholder suit. They claim that the energy giant deceived shareholders by not doing enough to uh, mm-hmm. limit the future risks of climate change. Interestingly enough, the the suit, because it is this sort of standard shareholder suit that the New York State Attorney General files all the time, it doesn't actually claim that ExxonMobil caused climate change yeah um you know obviously the scientific consensus is that a giant uh petroleum company is likely contributing to climate change right but but this case is actually a pretty normal shareholder case it basically says that the company outwardly presented this face to both the public but more importantly for this context to shareholders that it was taking action that it knew that more regulation was coming down that that it was going to have to take action Internally, according to the lawsuit, they didn't take those kind of steps, and they sort yeah. of discounted the 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 impact that that climate change would eventually have. Well, it's funny that I mean, this is we covered it this way, and everyone did. It's like, oh, this is climate change lawsuit against ExxonMobil. But as you laid out there, it's actually not saying like, hey, ExxonMobil, you're responsible for climate change. It's actually suing them because for not taking action 
to 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 sort of blunt the effect of climate change regulations. Right. Which is well, funny. It was like, oh, you should have known that they were going to regulate you more tightly. But if you follow it a step further, if companies have to be more transparent about you know the way that they're mitigating the risk of future regulations, oh no, then without they would a actually doubt. take those steps. And I think that's the idea of it. But but yeah, it's like what we said. It's this. It's these yeah. you know sort of interesting novel ways of getting climate change into a courtroom. Well, well let's talk more about that because like 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 you say, there the there's like a patchwork. There are environmental laws, of course, but there really isn't like quite a clean cause of action for like you climate change causer sure let's go to court well, and that's what we, we talked about it in other yeah. venues with like people trying to sort not backdoor but a side door to litigation right well it's 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 like anything i think it's what's so interesting about what we cover is this idea of finding a problem and then inevitably someone is going to find a creative way to get that problem into court even if there is no square sort of vehicle to mm-hmm. do so yeah um and I mean, in in this case, we saw and we talked about it on the podcast a few, um, maybe a month or two ago. Those cases um, they were filed by uh, San Francisco and Oakland, claiming um, they were called nuisance right, lawsuits, right? And it was claiming that you know climate change is causing all these problems that we as as municipalities are going to have to mitigate. That was about rising water levels, and they had to like build walls. Exactly. To, yeah. And mm-hmm. the, the idea is. Whoever is causing these then needs to chip in to help pay for exactly. the, the the problems that we the, like the, the the solutions to these problems. Um, that case that we did talk about, that nuisance case out in the Bay Area, it was tossed this summer. Mm. Um, a judge ruled that um, you know it's this big problem, but that um, quote deserves a solution more vast in scale than can be supplied by a district judge or jury. Right. So. Um, you know, they don't always work. They are creative cases. I think a lot of people scoffed at the the kids case that we were talking about before, because, yeah. again, it's these, you know, these sort of broad constitutional arguments yeah. that are applied to a very novel situation. But it survived but some motions to dismiss. It did, and, right. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it, it, it the, the thing to watch going forward as as climate change continues to be a bigger and bigger issue that we all have to talk about is what role does does the judiciary play in dealing with that? Is it purely a problem for legislators, or is it something where judges can can step in and make a difference? So we'll move from one New York attorney general filed suit to another one. There's a super interesting fight going on right now um, in the Southern District over the Trump administration's decision to alter the 2020 census. You mm-hmm. know the census. You get the form in the mail. You say how many people live in your house, some other demographic information. Buckle, buckle up, listeners. We're about to go on a white-knuckle ride through the world of censuses. No, this has this has wide implications. They have de- uh, The Trump administration in April decided to add a question to the census that asked um, the citizenship of the person mm-hmm. taking the census. Uh, this has prompted a suit from New York is leading the charge, but a bunch of state attorneys general and the ACLU yeah. have filed a case. They basically say that this is discriminatory and racially loaded. Um, and the White House and the Trump the, the Trump administration is sort of desperately trying to derail the lawsuit before it gets started. Yeah. And we've already, much like in the kids' uh, climate change case, we've already had some intervention from the Supreme Court on this. So, okay, so I have a lot of questions, but let's rewind and, you know, what did the government exactly do with the census and and why is that such a big deal for these challengers? All right. So, uh, as I said, they inserted a question into the census form that's going to be sent out in 2020, Mm -hmm. and it basically says, are you a citizen of the United States? And then there's a couple options like, yes, I was born here. I'm a naturalized citizen. There's another one. And then, no, I'm not a citizen. Those are those are the options. And this had been sort of 
whispered about and was in the hopper for a while because right when the Commerce Department, which administers the census, came forward with this, New York and a bunch of other states just like plowed ahead with this lawsuit, basically saying, making a couple different arguments. They made just an administrative law challenge by saying this is like an arbitrary, you know, administrative action. Sure. But also there's a constitutional challenge. They invoke Fifth Amendment equal protection stuff. And also just the terms of the census are in the Constitution. It's one of the very first things (laughs) that they decided to do. It was like every 10 years you have to count how many people are living in the country. There's some weird specific stuff in there. Well, and and one of the specifics is it says counting the residents of the country. It doesn't say anything about citizens. So it's saying like you're going beyond what the Constitution tells you to do here. Um, And so... Uh, the implications aren't just that this question is like kind of racist on its face and, and and loaded in that way. What the plaintiffs have said in the course of making filings in this case is basically given this administration's, you know, kind of fraught relationship with immigration policy sure. and the hard line they've taken in enforcing that, um, it, the, the question will essentially – you know, there there will be an incentive for immigrants, be they documented or or undocumented, to not answer. Sure. Out of fear of some kind of persecution or, or whatever the case may be. And if that happens, the census is used to redraw electoral maps from mm-hmm. time to time. And if the idea is this is sort of an indirect way of stifling minorities from being able to vote. Sure. It's a little bit um, labored in that argument. But you can see if you if you implement the changes from top down that way. That's that's basically the 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 crux of the stakes here. And it's a little bit ironic that they're making that argument because the stated reason for the administration's uh, for the administration adding this is basically they're making sure they say uh, uh, they're sort of ensuring effective enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. Huh. Yeah. Um, so people are making like in- entirely contradictory arguments. Yeah. To the, yeah. To yeah. The courts. So. Um, so as far as these kind of challenge, these sort of administrative challenges go, it seems like things were moving along fine, but we, we've hit some weird patches that sort of lead us to this week, right? Yeah, it went a little bit sideways, and it's now blown into this whole political thing. So, um, as you say, administrative challenges are, and as you hinted at up top, it's a little bit boring, because mostly when you're challenging new rules or policies that the government hands down, it's mostly just on the record, uh-huh. right? The administrative record. It's like emails between department, department officials and like, proposed rules and things like that. Sure. It's, it's mostly just document-based discovery. Um, but the plaintiffs here want to, uh, were, ha- have been attempting to actually hold a deposition for Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross uh-huh. and some other officials. They want to depose him. Why is that? And the reason for that is because he has made contradictory statements about why they pursued this policy. Initially, he testified before Congress that this is basically the idea of the Justice Department. They just came up with this idea and they proposed it to me because I run the census and I said yes. Mm-hmm. Um, in subsequent filings in this case, it's come out that as as early as like the first half of 2017, shortly after President Trump took office, Ross was discussing this census mm. question addition with Steve Bannon, like in the White House. This is very different than just like some Justice Department like shopkeeping, right? Right. So they wanted to pose. Steve Bannon him. has very measured takes on immigration. Though, <laughs> I know. So, it's, so, it's, so you, you can see why the people are filing suit like this. So they want to depose him and um, both the uh, SDNY, mm-hmm. which is where the case, case is taking place, and the Second Circuit said, yes, you can. Yeah. You have raised the specter of bad faith on the, on the part of the Commerce Secretary and other officials. But 
as you may recall, I mentioned at up top uh-huh. saying that the Supreme Court has already waded into this. We got those guys involved. Yeah, much like uh, much like in the other case we sure. talked about. So basically, um, this order to depose Secretary Ross mm-hmm. um, was 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 set to go. Was approved by the Second Circuit, and the Justice Department looked for an emergency stay from the Supreme Court, saying. They should not be allowed to depose the commerce. What's secretary. the argument for why you need an emergency stay to, 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 you know, in this circumstance? Well, the the argument is, I mean, they say this is highly unusual. It should just be based on the administrative record. This this evidence, the the, the, the lower courts were wrong when they when they suggested bad faith by the commerce secretary. Right, it was right. like that, that that is unreasonable. Like mm-hmm. they're, they're, you should not do that. Mm-hmm. Um, now the Supreme Court sided with them on that. They said, okay, you can't depose Wilbur Ross. And normally when they issue emergency stays, these are just little one-line items that say the stay is granted, right? We got a little wrinkle here, though, because Neil Gorsuch uh, wrote a dissent um, with – speaking also for Clarence Thomas. His dissent wasn't with, you can't depose Wilbur Ross. He said, yeah, like you definitely shouldn't be allowed to depose Wilbur Ross. But he went a step further and basically suggested that this case might be on a lot shakier ground than uh, than the plaintiffs think. This is a little bit of a long quote, but I'll read it. This is from Gorsuch. There's nothing unusual about a new cabinet secretary coming into office inclined to favor a different policy direction, soliciting support from other agencies to bolster his views, disagreeing with staff, or cutting through red tape. Of course, some people may disagree with the policy and process, but until now, at least, this much has never been thought enough to justify a claim of bad faith and launch an inquisition into a cabinet secretary's motives. Inquisition. This is, by the way, just a little aside here. This is quite uh, a line of thought from Mr. I hate the Chevron deference. I want to crack down on the administrative state. I'm just saying. Like, My man, Neil. He's basically deferring. He's basically saying, look, when new administrations come yeah. in, they can change policy as they see fit. OK, so we're paused right now. What? happens i mean my man neil said said hold on but what what are we doing next what what comes next yeah we're ping-ponging back and forth between the courts right now as of now um there's a tentative trial date set for november 5th here day before the midterm elections Mm -hmm. as it would happen um in the southern district of new york um and they're they're still trying to to do that they they only put a stay on ross's deposition other discovery is going forward Mm -hmm. but um the government has read this gorsuch dissent as basically a, you know, a flag up the pole to say you can maybe make a broader request to, like, perhaps halt discovery on the entire case if you want. So the oh, the, interesting. the court gave them until Monday. I love those. I love, like, signaling dissents. Uh, I mean, yeah, <laughs> and especially on something that's normally so pro forma like yeah. this. So they gave them until Monday to file a new petition. Um, the Justice Department has asked the lower court, hey, let's just pause the deposition here because essentially it's possible that if the Supreme Court rules on this petition, we don't have to have this trial at all. Right. So that's definitely something to keep an eye on. The stakes are very high, both politically and for this litigation. So, uh, you know, stay tuned. Fallout for Saudi Arabia from the killing of Washington Post columnist and political dissident Jamal Khashoggi has been widespread in the political and business realms. But what about the U.S. legal industry? At least one big law shop has stepped away from its work with the kingdom, but several other top firms have thus far stayed quiet. 
Here to talk about Big Law's ties to Saudi Arabia is Law 360 senior reporter Jimmy Hoover. Welcome to the show, Jimmy. Thanks for having me on. So, Jimmy, I, I think everyone's sort of been following along with the Khashoggi uh, scandal story, whatever you want to call it. Um, but walk us through the bare bones details of, of, you know, what happened and what got us talking about this. Sure. Yeah. Jamal Khashoggi was a prominent uh, in recent years critic of uh, the Saudi Arabian government living in the United States. Um, and October, uh, after October 2nd, his name kind of rocketed to headlines after he disappeared um, after entering the um, Saudi consulate in uh, Istanbul uh, in order to retrieve a marriage license for his uh, his upcoming uh, marriage to a uh, Turkish woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it soon became uh, apparent in, in press reports uh, citing Turkish officials that this was, you know, no ordinary disappearance and that he had actually been the victim of a, of a potentially state-sponsored uh, killing by uh, people close to the Saudi government. And it has spiraled in the in the, the weeks since that, you know, we've seen uh, there was that conference in that, that many U.S. business groups pulled out of and and it's been become a scandal for the for the Trump administration and and everything else. But but what we wanted to talk about today was the ties of the legal industry to this situation, because you put together a really, really great story. So, you know, I think I think one of the biggest things that I took away from from your story was just looking at what firms are in, are involved with Saudi Arabia and you know maybe ties that that we wouldn't know about from the surface. Right there, there are a number of uh, prominent U.S. Uh, law firms that have uh, you know relationships with the government of Saudi Arabia through um, the lobbying industry here in Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can just rattle them off for you. Uh, Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher is one that recently um, concluded their relationship with Saudi Arabia. Others include Hogan Lovells, uh, Pillsbury, Withrop, uh, Shaw Pittman, and King and Spalding, Squire Patton Boggs. These are all firms yeah. with you know uh, millions of dollars in uh, annual revenue. Yeah, these are not lightweights. Offices all over the yeah offices all over the world exactly, and so. Uh, the killing of uh, this, this journalist has, has really put a lot of pressure on you know, the major companies and institutions that do business with the government of Saudi Arabia, including these, uh, these law firms. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a tragedy on a, on a couple of different levels, but it's, um, it's also served as something of a flashpoint for, um, at a political level and at a business level, people who have had relationships with the kingdom going back decades and across administrations of both parties, people kind of taking stock of exactly what it means to be doing business with this country at this time. Um, you mentioned already in your previous answer that Gibson Dunn has decided to sort of wash their hands of their business relationship with Saudi Arabia. Tell us about how, uh, about how that all shook out. Yeah, so, so last Thursday, Gibson Dunn, um, after uh, numerous press inquiries from Law360 and I imagine other outlets as well, uh, they uh, submitted a regulatory filing with the Department of Justice office that basically keeps an eye on foreign lobbyists in this country, saying that they had concluded their representation of the Saudi embassy here in Washington. And, uh, you know, the, the firm didn't say in the filing what actually uh, made them cut ties, but I think all signs point to this latest development with this killing yeah. of this journalist. Correlation and causation yeah. and all that. And but, what kind of know. what kind of work were they doing for the Saudis? You mentioned the, the the consulate, but but what what was the you know what kind of work were they doing? Yeah, so so 
in the late summer, um, Gibson Dunn, through one of its more well-known uh, partners, uh, Ted Olson, who's a former U.S. Solicitor General, yeah. uh, entered into a, a contract with the uh, Saudi embassy, essentially to, to defeat uh, legislation that had been recently introduced in Congress, um, essentially uh, that would allow uh, you know, the U.S. government to, to, to sue um, OPEC, of which Saudi Arabia is the biggest member for uh, conspiring to inflate oil prices. So this is something that they obviously didn't want, and they wanted some veteran, you know, D.C. attorneys to help uh, basically fight it in their corner. So the deal that the firm had originally uh, agreed to was a flat fee of uh, $250,000, and that uh, amount of money covered, a, I think it was a white paper that opposed the um, proposed legislation, as mm-hmm. well as a legal analysis and an op-ed, and there was even an, an option uh, for $100,000 more um, per month, that is to say, um, if uh, the embassy wanted to have a firm partners, you know, sit down with members of Congress and things like that and really take the lobbying relationship to the next level. Yeah. It's so interesting with these, you know, we, we saw it with Skadden when we were talking about the, the Manafort stuff. I was going to say the FARA disclosures, it's, it's not just for getting Paul Manafort like, in trouble. Right, yeah. right. We, I mean, we know that we know that a lot of these sort of these elite big law firms are also doing lobbying a lot of sometimes on behalf of foreign governments. But when you really get into some of this, you know, the sausage making here, it is it is interesting to see that, that you know, what what kind of work is being done. Well, and right. and, and, and so Gibson is uh, now off this beat um, per per the reporting you did. But let's talk about some of the other firms that you name checked there. Uh, you mentioned Pillsbury, King and Spaulding, some others. Uh, what kind of work are they doing and what are the terms of these agreements? Sure. Yeah. So Hogan Lovells is a, is another heavyweight um, firm representing the kingdom. Um, they've actually had uh, a relationship with the embassy consistently, you know, since 2007. They've had a, a lengthy presence in in Saudi Arabia, and their most recent arrangement, I think, called for uh, a payment of you know $125,000 a month in three month installments. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of laid out in the regulatory filings in in somewhat vague terms of advocacy assignments and public affairs matters. But uh, looking back through some of the uh, older filings from, for instance, last year, it it, it, it appears that Hogan Lovells has been a, you know a, a top U.S. legal partner for the kingdom in pushing its um, uh, basically economic reform uh, agenda to kind of wean the country off of its dependence on oil as the primary engine of its economy. Hmm. And 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 Jimmy, you had mentioned uh, you know before we went on the air when we were talking a little bit that you've you've since come upon a little bit more about Hogan Lovell since you actually published this story. Right. So uh, after publishing the article, I, I did a little bit more research on Hogan Lovells's um, you know roots and ties to uh, Saudi Arabia and found that over the summer they actually were part of a wave of new investment in, in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, uh, partnering up with uh, a Saudi firm, you know, as part of the new economic reforms that are taking place there. So, Jimmy, that's what Hogan is up to. What about some of the other ones you mentioned? So, Pillsbury and, and King and Spaulding um, are separately working on uh, kind of the same issue for uh, the Saudi government, which is to say they're working on commercial nuclear development and potentially coming up with a bilateral agreement for you know peaceful uses of nuclear energy uh, with the United States. Hmm. So that's what they've been working on. Yeah. Okay, Jimmy. So w- we saw that Gibson Dunn has withdrawn their work with Saudi Arabia, and obviously they haven't said specifically that it was because of this, but um, do, when you were talking to any of these other firms or when you were reaching out to them, did you get a sense that 
other firms might be following in in Gibbs and Dunn's footsteps. I mean, is the, is this is this sort of pressure building to the point where other firms are going to start withdrawing their work? It's unclear, but that does not appear to be the case. Um, I spent uh, most of last week uh, calling around and emailing, you know, the different partners that were associated with these uh, contracts with the Saudi Arabian government. Uh, as well as the communications departments at these major firms, which I'm sure you guys are aware, are generally pretty responsive to inquiries depending on what you're asking. Sure. <laughs> but That's um, an important clause, though, <laughs> depending on what you're asking about <laughs> and, at, and, at, and at what point in history you're asking about right. it. But yeah. Right. But in the course of kind of calling around and working the phones a little bit, I really didn't hear back much, although a, a source familiar with the matter told me that uh, Brownstein's contract uh, with the government had not changed in, in the wake of uh, this episode over the killing of this journalist. Um, but as I said, um, the other firms, uh, we were, I was unable to um, obtain any solid information about whether anything had changed with respect to their agreements. Um, there was even a moment with King and Spalding where I called the uh, partner uh, closely associated with this contract only to be referred to a uh, communications director only to be met with uh, basically no response um, over the course of days. So definitely seems like I've, uh, in the course of reporting this, touched upon a bit of a nerve in a sensitive area where um, firms don't really want to be publicly commenting about their relationships with the kingdom at at this very um, kind of uh, politically tense time. Well, Jimmy, as you say, it's clear they're not talking right now. They're keeping their cards close to the chest. But, I mean, do you have a sense of what the overall sort of long-term plan is here? Are they just hoping to wait something out? Or, I mean, what is what are the implications of this? I don't have a, a clear sense of what their plans are. But one, uh, the possibility is that these major firms, absent any you know commitment from the U.S. government to impose significant sanctions against the Saudi Arabian government, are kind of just weathering the political storm at the moment until um, you know they can continue back to their relationships with the with the kingdom un, un unfazed. Uh, Jimmy, this has been really really interesting. We are thrilled that you came on the show to talk about it. I think it gave us all a glimpse into. A world that, like we said, you know, it, it's it's there below the surface. I mean, it's 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 a world that we cover every day in terms of litigation. But some of this lobbying work, some of this, uh, you know, ad- advisory work, is something that you don't hear about as much. So, um, thanks for coming on and talking about it. Thanks for having me on. We like to end the show with something offbeat. And for this segment, Bill, I pose to you a question. Do you think that drunkenness is an absolute defense against an insider trading charge? I mean, look, I, I can't imagine that it is, uh, but I, I feel like you're going you're gonna to tell me about this. Yes. So that is the central uh, question at issue in this case we're talking about today. It actually involves a former Hunton and Williams attorney uh-huh. um, who got popped for uh, giving a friend a stock tip in 2010. Um, in like a very lyrical way. He was like, don't you want to be king for a day yeah okay so uh this guy his name is robert shulman he's, again he's a former hunt and williams partner 
um, he was talking with um, his friend and financial advisor um, while he was representing this pharmaceutical company called King Pharmaceutical. Uh-huh. Um, he was doing work for them in some other capacity, but he knew in the course of this work that King was about to be uh, acquired by Pfizer. And so when they are having this conversation, he as he literally says, as you say, mentioned something about being king for a day. <laughs> and this prompted the other Just guy. Just a long wink. This prompted the other guy, uh, the advisor, to buy a bunch of shares uh-huh. of King, mm-hmm. including some in Shulman's name. He eventually got popped for insider trading. Now, part of the defense that he told the court at that time was that, uh, and, and I'll just I'll just go from our story here. Uh, his his lawyers claim as such a, a regrettable but legal slip of the tongue in an unguarded moment after several glasses of wine. Without proof, Shulman intended for anyone to take action on his inebriated king for a day comment. Uh, and basically, he's arguing that because he was speaking extemporaneously while drunk, he can't be held like actively liable for, for insider trading. Now, look, I'm not a defense attorney, but um, I don't know if right now is the best time to be making the argument that uh, you shouldn't be held liable for things you did when you were drunk <laughs> and you don't remember. That is that is absolutely true. Um, and for what it's worth, the the district court agreed with you. Um, he did <laughs> not he did not beat the rap at the district court level. He is now making that. He was convicted in 2017. He is now making that. He's now recycling the same defense at the Second Circuit. Can you imagine yeah. appearing in the Second Circuit? You gotta, love, you gotta love insider trading. The one thing you're not allowed to do. You can do lots of other things. Just can't do that one. It's true. It's like the one white collar. We've talked about That's it before. I mean. It's like the one white collar thing that like is basically. Like we're really good at doing We're really good at getting getting people for this. Yeah, right. And now, I mean, you know, the guy's the guy's up there and he's basically talking to the to the three judge panel and, and the, the defense boils down to, yes, I've had a few Chardonnays. <laughs> what of it? <laughs> you drunk, Mr. Hurley? <laughs> uh, fun fact, when I was when I was off the show two weeks ago, I was in wine country with my wife and I was able to say I've had a few Chardonnays. What of it? And that was actually a true statement. We are referencing... Uh, the film Big Daddy, which, which is not the first time we've talked about that on the podcast. No, it came up in our our, our show about legal movies, um, which it's is true. a well-known legal movie. And that happens in the courtroom, right? It does, it does yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, so uh, this guy, Shulman, he's making this argument again at the Second Circuit. I hope he doesn't get, uh, do you remember the, the, the show we did a couple weeks ago where the judge was like, the judge was just grilling that poor attorney. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I hope it wasn't that group of group of judges. I hope not. Um, anyway, I I mean, we don't we don't do a lot of prognostication here. I but I, I I don't think I like his chances. I mean, this just doesn't seem like like literally he's saying I was drunk doesn't count. Yeah, it doesn't it's kinda, seem like it's kind of wild. Kind of work. Um, anyway, uh, I'm going to open a bottle, I think, uh, and then we can shuffle off here. Well, 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 before before we shuffle off, uh, we wanted to give a quick shout out to a new publication that we're doing here at Law 360. It's called Access to Justice. We're all very excited about it here. Yeah. Um, it's it's going to be really interesting stuff that's a little bit different than the normal stuff that, that we cover. That's right. Um, and it, uh, you know, we're going it, to, it's it's what it sounds like. It's covering access to justice. It's about how the legal system works and how it might be improved for people in marginalized communities, minorities, other things. We'll deal with things like bail reform, civil legal aid, criminal justice reform. This is stuff that we, you know, touch on occasionally, but now we have a full 
new wire for yeah. it uh, that importantly exist out, outside of our paywall. So if you listen to the show and sometimes, you know, we, we tell you to read the stories, yeah. you, you can't always. <laughs> um, there's a good chance we'll talk about some Access to Justice stories on this show. Yeah. And then, and, you know, anyone can read them. And it's kicking off Monday, um, which uh, so everyone should go check it out. Um, one of the one of the first stories that we're going to be having is about um, it's a, this big upcoming Supreme Court case that could have a really big impact on how legal service providers uh, get their funding, which is obviously a huge issue. So um, keep an eye out for Law 360's Access to Justice. It comes out this Monday after after the show comes out. Well, Bill, we did it. Got through the whole show. We didn't drive the car into the mountain or anything. We didn't mess up once. Not one time. No. Uh, so Amber will be back next week. Um, but I thought we did an okay job. Thanks, buddy. I had a great time. I was I was happy to be here for the uh, for the brose episode. Brose, thanks. Um, we have many people to thank for this week's show. Our producers Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, as well as our guest Jimmy Hoover. Contributing reporters for this episode were Kevin Penton, Allison Noon, and Keith Goldberg. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about any of the legal developments we've discussed today, check out our website, law360.com slash podcast. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher, and if you like it, please leave us a review. It really helps. Thanks a lot. As always, music for the show. Com- God damn it. How does she do this? I'm like... <laughs>